Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Coral Chihuahua. <laughs> cool suspension. I'm Robert Hollingworth, and I'm here today with Harry Christophers. Hello, Harry. Hello, Robert. Uh, also, Eamon Dugan. Hello. Uh, but today we have a guest, our first guest. Now, we know that we all know that classical music is niche, and professional choral singing is niche, and professional choral singing 16th century music is really very niche indeed. And no one who gets to the top of that world is ever going to have to avoid going out to the shops because they might get recognised. However, in the room today, in the virtual room, because we're recording still under lockdown, we have absolute royalty from this world. I bow the knee at the mention of her name. Colleagues listening will do the same. It's someone who has spent their entire lives immersed in singing Shepherd, Talis, Bird and others with the UK's top specialist vocal ensembles, Sally Dunkley. Sally, welcome to Coral Chihuahua. Thank you very much, Robert, and thank you for that most kind introduction. How would you describe yourself? We can we can talk about you behind your back a bit later, but how would you describe yourself? <laughs> um, well, after much thought and argument, I describe myself now as singer and practical scholar. I am definitely not a musicologist. I merely read some of the stuff that other people have written and gain useful knowledge from it. Um, I usually I describe myself as singer, not soprano, because... Um, I sometimes sing quite low parts as well as higher parts, and that seems to me quite a good description. So I do a bit of both. Um, I love singing music of other centuries, actually, also. Well, yes, and in fact, let's get straight on to your first track. This might surprise a few people, although not anyone who's been to a choral pilgrimage concert in the last 20 years. But what is your first track? This is Poulenc, Soir de Neige, which was um, a motet that Poulenc wrote during the last part of the Second World War. It's uh, a scene in a very cold winter uh, in a wooded land. Poulenc wrote such wonderful music for texts by Paul Éluard, uh, Figure Humaine, the big cantata, mm. And this small piece, which was something that I discovered through the 16 and which I particularly value. As great drifts of snow gather round our frozen feet, with strained words we run into stubborn winter. Each tree has its place in the air, each rock its weight on the earth. We have no fire.
the first movement of Poulenc's Un Soir de Neige, sung by the 16. Sally, did you sing at school? Yes, I had some great opportunities to sing at school, um, particularly in a, a mixed choir in York directed by Percy Lovell, who was the director of music at Bootham. Uh, we sang uh, the St John Passion, we sang parts of the St Matthew Passion, um, which were fantastic opportunities for a young teenager, really memorable opportunities. And when you came up to university, I mean, obviously, the, the fascinating link is, is with David Woolston, the, the conductor of the Clerks of Oxenford. When did you first, when were you first aware of him? He uh, was interviewing me for the uh, application to come and be a student in Oxford. And he tied me in terrible knots or tried to anyway. Um, so that was uh, something that I stuck with here. Yeah. I've got to ask the question, Harry listening there. Mm -hmm. When did Harry met Sally? <laughs> <laughs> I think it must have been the Clarks, wasn't it, Sally? It's probably yes. sort of end of Oxford days, 1970. I mean, Sally, you know, I was at Oxford 73 to 77 and, uh, you know, Sally was a legend there, even then and uh, just a hero of everybody and, uh, you know, exemplified so much about um, singing. We all trying to aspire to it. Well, I think the chronology was... Um, the Clerks of Oxenford, which we'll talk about a bit later, I think, um, had a three-week residency at the festival in Saint in southwest France. How on earth we came by, by that, I've no idea. Anyway, <laughs> three weeks fantastic. in this wonderful, hot, beautiful place singing concerts in the Abbey and then the last week being shipped out to Romanesque churches in the area. And um, the personnel of the clerks was never the same two days running. People came and people went. Um, but I do remember that that was, I think, how I got to know Harry. I think it was. Fantastic fish food. Oh, gosh, it was brilliant. That, that some of yeah. us will just be sitting here listening and thinking about the amount of money required to make that happen, as opposed to what there is these days. Extraordinary times. Uh, what about you, Eamon? I mean, we'll be going on a decade or two because you're still in shorts. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Sally. I was just going to say it's so lovely to hear your voice. I'm sitting here with a big grin on my face. Oh, uh, six that's weeks into lockdown, nice. very nice yes, to hear. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, you've already been called a legend at least twice. I'm going to say it a third time, but you know, I've been listening to you on recordings for for many years, and then I think we sang in a concert together um, with Magnificat, Philip Cave's group in Oxford, either that or maybe I'd come to the concert. Anyway, and I'd recall standing at the bar of the King's Arms chatting to you. And I thought, well, you, you know, you don't often get these opportunities. And I remember very cheekily asking you whether you ever sang in concerts for no fee. Uh, <laughs> because I had a little group and maybe you'd like to come and sing with us. And you sort of looked me in the eye and said, well, depend on the repertoire. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> I was doing something that you were interested in and you very kindly came and sang for me for, for a couple of years. Which was delightful. I remember we sang um, French, a load of French music, and I was singing a duet with Carolyn Sampson. And even at that time, you know, long before she was really a professional singer, one realised instantly that there was a huge, huge talent. It yeah, was wonderful. Mm. Absolutely. I was very lucky to have two legends. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, Sally, uh, do you know, there was a, a very early days of the 16, there was a concert we did at St Margaret's Westminster when I think you almost said, enough's enough, I'm not singing anymore for you. Uh, it was a bit of a long concert. Do you remember it? I think you did programme some quite long concerts <laughs> in those early days. And I, th I do remember singing in St Margaret's Westminster. And I remember in those days, I was so lacking in confidence vocally. Uh, I was so scared that anyone would ask me to sing one bar on my own. Uh, it took me a long time to move on from there. Ah, oh, Sally, we're glad you did. <laughs> Let, let's hear some. Let's hear some some music with Sally singing music that one would instinctively connect to her, with you, Sally. This is Shepherd, one of the two Liberano settings from 1989.
What a staggering piece of writing that is. I've got shivers going all the way down my spine. The bass line there singing the slowed down plain chants and this slow harmonic movement and this rhapsodic stuff. An amazing bit of singing from the two uh, sopranos there, Carolyn Sampson uh, and Ruth Dean. Um, Sally, can we just go back to the David Woolston thing? I, I want to get an idea for the sort of sense of excitement there was back in the 70s and early 80s, because this was early in the in the new part of the early music revival, and certainly for choral groups. We weren't used to hearing these kind of sounds before. No, indeed. Um, I think there are two things. One, um, John Shepherd worked at Magdalen College, Oxford, in the mid-16th century, and in the late 1960s, um, there was a move to explore um, music by people that had worked at Magdalen. So there's a Magdalen choir with Dr Bernard Rose conducting um, recording of music by some of those composers. Um, the Shepherd's music was being rediscovered at this point. It wasn't so well known because it had not been published in Tudor church music in the 1930s, uh, largely because one of the part books of the main sources was missing, had been missing for hundreds of years. So in order to perform it, much of it, you had to reconstruct a tenor baritone part, um, which of course delayed everything and made it uh, a real challenge to anyone that wanted to um, perform the music. You had to do your own edition first of most pieces. Mm. Um, so when the clerks were singing concerts in Magdalen College Antichapel, which was their usual venue, um, we were aware that perhaps we were singing this music in this place for the first time for hundreds of years. It's always dangerous to claim that you're doing something first because someone always comes back and said, oh, but we did it 50 years ago or whatever. But um, most probably some of those pieces were being performed in Magdalen for the first time since Shepherd's time. People still talk about those concerts. They do. I'm always really touched. There are people of a certain age who come up to me at the end of our choral workshops and want to say how much they remembered some of those concerts, um, which is wonderful. Uh, it makes it all come together. Um, the Clark's concerts were either inspired at times or really rough and under-rehearsed. <laughs> uh, when it was bad, it could be terribly bad, and I have tapes to prove it. But when it was good, it was absolutely inspirational. I don't care what pitch you sing it at, but those things, David Wilson particularly, got to the heart of some of that music, uh, drew us all into the emotional world that you find in pieces like Libranos, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a very moving experience to sing it and it's quite hard to sing them now sometimes. I remember listening um, exactly like that, Sally. I was wandering down the cloisters my sort of first year at Magdalen and then hearing these amazing sounds coming from the antechapel and uh, it, was, it was spellbindingly beautiful. Um, but I also do remember a story about the Clarks, very early days of it, doing Wilkinson's Salvagina and, you know, all this high-pitched oh. lark. And I think the concert was at Eton Chapel, wasn't it? And Walston looked in his copy, upper minor third, and saw the note, you know, what, you know, A flat or something. But he, then he, he blew a note, upper minor third, from that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and didn't stop, I gather. It was live on the radio. Uh, it wasn't on the radio, actually, oh, right. but it was Windsor Festival. So it was a really big deal, you know, for the Clarks to be engaged by Win Windsor Festival. And we realised pretty soon on uh, that something was catastrophically wrong. <laughs> and, you know, it's a long piece. It's at least 10 minutes, isn't it? And minutes, it was almost breaking down all the time and he didn't stop. Um <laughs> I don't think anyone had perfect pitch, but we knew that something was gone terribly wrong. And in the interval, 
we we all talked about it. And so the second half, um, he made a little speech about that it was his fault for giving the wrong note. And we then had to sing most of it again at the <laughs> intended pitch. So it was one of the most embarrassing experiences I can think of, really. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We keep going back to this issue of pitch. I wonder, Sally, within 30 seconds, whether you could explain what the issue is without explaining exactly how, but just what it is. Ah, oh, that's really difficult. Um, when we perform music of the 16th century, for instance, we look at the notes on the page and we might start to think that A equals 440, as it does in the UK now. Um, that is not the case. If you are a small boy in the 16th century learning to sing music, you would start with plain chant. And as we know, plain chant tells you where the tones and semitones are. It doesn't tell you anything about the pitch. You choose what pitch to sing it at. So we have to get into that starting point. David Wollstone in the mid-1960s um, worked on ideas about performing pitch. And he came up with the conclusion that in England in the mid-16th century, it may have been a minor third higher than the notes as written in the sources um, suggest. And the clerks really uh, put his ideas into practice. So we were singing all that polyphony at a very high pitch where the top trebles are singing top B flat. Uh, that's the top of the tessitura. Um, these ideas, which uh, various groups continued with later, um, have not really withstood the passage of time and they are no longer in favour with performers, really. Well, however, that th they did make a certain sound that really was something of the zeitgeist. It caught people's imagination. And even, I mean, with that new telescope, newish telescope recording of the Miss uh, Gloria Tibi Trinitas, that the reviewers just love that high sound. I mean, Eamon, when were you first aware of this? You heard those early Clark's recordings? I, I did. Um, but, you know, to just look at the other side of the coin, I mean, Sally's mentioned how uh, it wasn't always of the, of the top quality. I remember buying a recording of uh, Ty's Mr. UJ Bonet and um, just having to bring it back to the shop because it was so out of tune. Uh, and so that was, you know, that was the, the flip side of the coin that the, 
you know the practical and technical challenges of singing the music at that pitch uh it's not a surprise that it hasn't withstood the test of time Let, let's hear something else no announcement play the track fabulous bit of bark that is it's amazing um and sally of course you're singing in that and that was in the mid i think 1980s um a certain very young mark padmore on the tenor line i can hear him there and the wonderful jane co sadly passed away a few years ago uh, playing the cello um it was it was such wonderful music to sing and interesting interesting you've chosen bach i mean that's 200 years further on than the shepherd we were just listening to Yes, that is actually my favourite 16 CD. It always has been. Um, and I think, I actually, I wish I'd spent more of my, much more of my life singing Bach. I'm making up for it now uh, in Oxford, singing uh, cantatas once a month with uh, the Oxford Bach soloists, which is just thrilling. Um, but I'm very fond of that recording, and it was a great vintage of singers. 
Sally, what as as a young singer, as a young university and young professional singer, who who inspired you? Who were you aware of at the time? Well, I would say that much of my education was down to BBC Radio Three. Uh, lots of wonderful recordings. In those days, they used to do what they called studio recordings. So you get an outside broadcast van. Uh, and you would record a programme um, in a church in London or uh, in Magdalen College Chapel in Oxford for the class. And some of the most wonderful consort singing that I heard on the radio was recorded by the Martindale Sidwell consort. Martindale Sidwell, for whom I sang from the age of 17 onwards in his choral society, and went on singing for to the end of his life, 1992, I think, um, was one of my two great mentors. Um, he had singers in his consort who sang this polyphonic music so beautifully with that wonderful open tone and phrasing, lovely, lovely, lovely phrasing. Um, that's the sound that I have always wanted to aspire to. I'm still trying now to get anywhere near it. <laughs> well, but when well, you say that, the one thing we haven't actually heard yet is, is you singing on your own. So we're just going to pop in a little bit of Piggott here and hear the actual warm voice of Sally Dunkley. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So that, for me, is the absolutely unmistakable sound of, of the voice of Sally Dunkley, which I connect with all my listening to um, sacred groups in the, the 1980s and 90s. Harry, what was that? It was uh, one of the verse sections from Quid Petis Ophelia by, by uh, Piggott. And uh, I think Sally was singing the verse with Simon Birchall at that time. Um, so it's, and, and Sally, it's unmistakably you. And when I listened to the Poulenc at the very beginning of the, of the programme, you know, there, there you can hear your sound in that, those wonderful Poulenc phrases. As you've just mentioned, you know, warm singing, gutsy singing. And uh, I think that's what we're all about. Yep, agreed. Apart from your singing work, Sally, and your editing work, you say you don't call yourself a musicologist, but you are involved very heavily in the uh, in the choral pilgrimages workshops that the sixteen run. And, and Eamon, you're working with Sally on that. Yeah, so for over it's over a decade now. I think we've been running these workshops, uh, which form part of the choral pilgrimage, where we work with uh, with amateur singers uh, normally on the day of a concert, and we'll work through some of the repertoire that they'll they'll then come and hear uh, in the performance by the sixteen in the evening. The idea being that. We're giving them a uh, an insight into the music, so they see it from the inside out, and and when they hear it in the evening, uh, it's with a greater level of understanding. How do you split that work between you? What are you both doing on those days? It's a tag team effort, wouldn't you say, Sally? Yes, um, I love it. Love it. We we interact. Um, so, Eamon, I always say at the beginning of these workshops that I come away from them feeling I've had a most brilliant singing lesson. I have indeed learnt a lot from you, Eamon, in that respect, which I really appreciate and value. Um, so Eamon conducts and I talk in a very informal way, I generally make a nuisance of myself questioning things. And, you know, it's really interesting that the sort of people that come to those workshops actually seem to appreciate having a little information, little being the operative word, about the background to what they're singing 
um, and how it might have been different at different times and how we sing it now and how they sing it now and all that kind of thing. And I've found that I really enjoy communicating in a very informal way like that with uh, people that are interested. It's great. It does provide a nice connection with the audience as well. And then if, if you go out and um, walk among the audience during the interval and actually chat to the people who've been at the workshops, it's always fascinating to get their take on the pieces that they've worked on and then heard subsequently. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yep. And also one of the great things they discover in those workshops, I think, when they hear the concert in the evening, is that singing that music is not easy for any of us. Uh, And that's a very valuable perspective, I think. I really like that. There are so many choral pilgrimages, Sally, which uh, actually you've been so involved in with with editing. And I I sort of remember one in 2010, um, which I think we just used to call the Sally Dunkley uh, show. I I don't think any of the composers really existed. They've actually, these pieces were all written by you. There was Talis Shepard, Bird, Talis. They were all your auditions and they were all brilliant. And I think that's also part of these these workshops where they realise that actually there's a lot more that goes into the music making than just singing the notes on the page. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, if you like, the other the other half of my working life has been getting the copies prepared for people to sing. And that, I started it merely because decades ago, if you wanted to perform Shepherd, you had to provide your own edition because it was not published. And of course, all that has changed fundamentally over the last few decades in that now people probably look on the dreaded CPDL. It's free. It's got no quality um, control, but it's free. And there are some terrible things there as well, some really, really excellent and useful things. So all that side of it, I guess if you're in the audience, you don't necessarily know about but it all needs to be done before the rehearsal begins. And I've always enjoyed doing that, just sorting it out, really. There's one really small thing which is absolutely brilliant, though. With all your editions, you put in the English translation on the page of the words that everybody's singing about, which, you know, we expect in groups like Fagellini and uh, and the Sixteen for them to know what they're uh, singing about, but we don't always. And certainly for when you have the workshops, it's wonderful for those singers uh, to know what exactly what those Latin words mean so they can relate to it. It's a really simple thing, but no, very few editions do it. Yes, of course. Why didn't we always do it? Um, it is my dear friend and colleague, Francis Steele, bass, who always spent the evening after a rehearsal uh, doing the translation of what he was going to sing the next day and writing it in like that. So we took up that idea in our editions published by Oxford University Press. There are about a dozen of them, big pieces. And of course, it's much valued by people singing the music. And I now always do it. It really is an obvious idea, isn't it? Um, we should have done it ages ago. I, I want to pick pick you up on something here that, that um, I think there is a perception people coming new to 16th century vocal music, and especially if people haven't heard it before, that whenever any of us hears a new style of music, we hear the noise of the music before we actually hear the musical processes. And I think there's a perception that English groups sing this 16th century repertoire without any kind of feeling at all. Now, Sally, David Woolston had views on this, didn't he? The whole business of expression. Yes, he did. He wanted the music to speak for itself Um, and he believed that the role of the conductor was not to impose interpretation in inverted commas on the music. In Clark's we didn't talk about the word text really um, though he, David, uh, was so familiar with Latin and many other languages that he must have known exactly what it was about. But I think we were focused on making shapes, making wonderful phrasing, uh, which to me is the first thing that I think of still, um, rather than interpreting the text. And I think that in the Talis scholars, uh, the text in my time was not 
discussed, really. Yeah, that's something we could all, you know, be shocked about. But actually, the idea that you sit as a conductor with a piece of polyphony, specifically, now I'm talking about polyphony with with these uh, different lines working together, you can't impose a crescendo on a piece of polyphony in the same way as you can on, say, a piece of handle, because everyone has a different rise and fall uh, in the phrase. So it is very much about the intelligence of singers in understanding their music. So I think, I, I see where Woolston's coming from. I, mean, I suppose Harry, Eamon and I, we might put it slightly differently, but I can, I can see why he's, uh, why that, that was a need back in, say, the 1960s and 70s, when if you think of choral sounds there, uh, coming out of a 19th century tradition, there was much more overt director, director, maestro sort of sense. Yeah, I think this was all new, you see. that This is, this is the thing, you know, back in the Clark's day, this was all a new sound. And Salis put a finger on it that actually what Walston was telling us was telling us the, the shape, the architecture of the phrase, making the building use those phrases, making making that all work for you. Um, and I think, as you just mentioned, Robert, that I, th- I think both of us feel we do like to put a stamp on the interpretation of the words and bring that across. But that's sort of, you know, an added thing that we're, you know, we've had the bonus of, of David's phenomenal um, sort of tutoring in the way to sing this music. Sally, I can remember us having a conversation about In Felix Ego by Bird when we were performing and recording it with the 16. Uh, and you telling me that you had recorded it previously. And as you said, there'd been no mention of the text, but you felt that Regardless of that, because of the the musicians involved, uh, you still made a very uh, compelling uh, presentation of the piece, despite not knowing what the text was about. Yes, that's true. Um, of course, of all the pieces you could have chosen to talk about, um, that that is one of the ones where one most needs to understand where the text came from and all the background mm. about Savonarola and all that kind of thing and exactly what you are singing about because there are some rhetorical moments there that one needs to be very aware of when singing it. I would like to say something really heretical. Is the ceiling going to come down on my head? (laughs) Um, Actually, I don't like writing in dynamics on polyphonic music. (sighs) Please, can I? I really believe that. Um, I think you need to know whether you're starting loud or soft in order to breathe in an appropriate way at the beginning of a paragraph. And then I like to write more and less, which I think are really good words, because polyphony is a kaleidoscope, isn't it? At at every moment, one part is more important Mm. than all the other parts, Mm. but not for long. It's always being passed on or back to another voice. So you need, as a singer, you need to be aware of where your importance is in the hierarchy of what's going on at that particular moment. And that's really important. So what I'm saying really is that when you're singing it, you need to know all the voice parts in order to make real sense of the music. I think it's time we had a Sally Dunkley handbook on singing polyphony. (laughs) And incidentally, Sally, I'd like that in writing, please, because the number of times at workshops over the years, people have come up to me when we've been working on polyphony and said, but you haven't given us any dynamics. I know, and this sets me off on this great rant, and I'm really embarrassed, but, you know, I really do believe it, actually. But can we, we, we make clear here, we're not talking about a lack of expression. We're no, talking no, about, not We're talking about musicianship uh, that understands the music and draws out what's already in it. So, you know, in a, in a Monteverdi magical, for example, you know, if you have the three middle voices singing down low, Monteverdi will then repeat that music with all five of them using a much broader range, which generally means louder you know, loud and high, same same word in Italian. So I, this is so much what music making in the 16th century is about. It's about drawing out what is already there and all the singers understanding their part in it. It's not about a lack of expression. That's a different thing. Yeah, it's very much about expressing the music, isn't it? Arrows, an arrow pointing to towards a particular syllable is often a very useful thing. This is the trajectory, I've been practising saying that word, I have a lot of trouble getting it out of my mouth, trajectory (laughs) is what we're 
trying to what we need to know about yeah. in every phrase that we sing. Yes, it's what we always often talk about in, in 16 rehearsals is ebb and flow, light and shade. And, and Sally, you just mentioned that sort of more and less. I mean, in my copies, it's usually just a plus or a minus sign that I use, uh, mm. you know, just bringing out parts. But it is, but of course, it is different, uh, isn't it, when you've got a consort of singers where you've got each in, so one to a part and being able to express themselves in a in a in a in a very sort of personal way and then doing it chorally with maybe three or sometimes maybe even four people to a part or even more in the workshops where people then have to think of the ideas corporately and together but you're quite right in that you know you cannot in this sort of music you cannot have block dynamics you can use that very occasionally when it's a big tutti entry or something like that mm, but mm. block dynamics do not do not work and you have to encourage singers you know, right from an early age to think in shapes and architecture. I just, while we've got Sally here, I want to do something that I, I always tried to sell to Radio 3, but they thought there would be libel issues. Um, I, I want to talk about what it's like singing for different conductors. You can refer to them as conductor A, B and C, if you like. But what's it like singing the same repertoire, jumping from, you know, one group to another on different days of the week? Uh, well, actually, I would say and really mean that as a singer, you learn something memorable and very useful from every conductor. Now, in my early days, uh, I did sing a few concerts for Michael Howard, Cantoris wow. in Ecclesia. And I knew Michael quite well because I was often his dep working in BBC Radio 3 writing the scripts between the music for the next day. Um, and, you know, you, you might say listening to some of those recordings of Cantores and Ecclesia from the early 1970s, you might say this is absolutely the other end of the spectrum in that it's quite a vibrato full noise and it is very much interpreted in inverted commas. Um, and... I learned quite a lot from singing for Michael Howard. This was the the last uh, last months of Cantoris Nicolesi, really. But uh, I remember we sang "Bird Libera May" in a, a ecclesiastical building somewhere in Belgium, and it was terrifying because you could see that the flames of hell were licking around his copy. <laughs> And he communicated that to all of us in a way that, you know, even for an unbeliever, was terrifying. And I'll never forget that. Sally, how has the singing business changed? You've been in a new bit of the business, um, historically informed performance choral groups since the 70s. How has the business changed? The level of competence, both vocal and musical, has gone up beyond description. The world is now full of people who can sing this music on their own. They can not only get it right, they make a beautiful sound and they have the confidence to stand up and do it. It was most certainly not like that in my early days. So uh, just look around at all those small single voice consorts of younger people that there are going now and they're all really excellent you know if you go back 20 years the the personnel of groups such as um the 16 the talus scholars the gabriella consort there was an awful lot of crossover between those groups uh, and that's far less the case nowadays we, we've got to finish somewhere but clearly this could go on and on and on it's too interesting sally what are we going to finish with i have chosen um my desert island track this is the Agnus Dei from Philippe Rogier's mass, Ego Sum, Quisum. And the performers are Philip Cave and his ensemble Magnificat. Uh, Philip is a very old friend of mine. I've worked with him a lot. Um, and I, I am singing in this recording, which I just love. He pulls the expression out of the music and it sounds as though everybody's having a good day, and I just love it. Well, thank you for coming on to Coral Chihuahua to provide some fascinating insights about what is a crazy niche world, a Sally Dunkley legend. 
Choral Chihuahua is brought to you by Ifagellini and the Sixteen and produced by Perseus, the Sixteen and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and this episode was further sponsored by Bridget Rosewell. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please contact us through either ensemble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.